Hi, Guy here. Hope you're well. Hope you're better than me anyway. I've got a nasty cold this week, which is uh, slowing me down, but I'm soldiering on. But enough about that. Um, this episode, I speak to Dr. Sue Black. Sue Black left home and school at the age of 16. She got married at the age of 20 and was a single mother of three at 25. But fast forward a couple of decades, she's now got a degree in computing, a PhD in software engineering. She's a technology evangelist, digital skills expert, UK government advisor, and an honorary professor of computer science at UCL. She's also a social entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker. And she was awarded an OBE for services to technology in 2016. She runs a social enterprise called Tech Mums, which helps mums te- get uh, technology skills, helps them build their confidence by encouraging them into education, entrepreneurship, and employment. And she also led the successful campaign to save Bletchley Park uh, from uh, being shut down. She also wrote an Amazon UK bestseller about it, uh, which you can get at uh, all good bookshops. Now, in this fascinating interview, you can hear Sue explain how she dramatically in her words, changed her life by forcing herself to overcome her shyness. How she ended up being the most retweeted person in the world during the Save Bletchley Park campaign. And the story of why she dyes her hair bright red. Just before um, we sat down for this interview, I had a quick look at your uh, Twitter feed and I saw that you were out winning awards last night. So just tell tell me a bit about that. Well, it was amazing. So um, the BEMA, the British Interactive Media Association, um, we were nominated for an award, um, Tech Mums. So Tech Mums, my social enterprise, was nominated for an award in the category of um, uh, diversity and inclusion uh, initiative. And uh, we put forward Tech Mums TV, which was a show um, that we recorded in Facebook studios in London. So, So Tech Mums is all about... Um, helping mums feel more confident with technology to, to help the mums themselves and also to help the kids and like the whole family um, to understand and feel more comfortable with technology. And my, my background is computer science, so it's something that I'm really passionate about. And so in February, March, we ran Tech Moms TV from Facebook Studios in London, which was, I guess, basically like a kind of one-hour chat show with mainly young mums coming in, telling us about their experiences. So... You know, some of it was quite emotional, the stuff they were talking about, like difficult stuff, you know, because quite often young mums particularly get vilified by the public, unfortunately. Um, And so they have a difficult time. And we really wanted to have a very positive show um, about young mums and kind of show what they're achieving. Um, So it was kind of about that, but also about technology and how to use technology in your life to to make your life easier. You know, we talked about... um, straightforward stuff like how to set up your your privacy um settings on facebook through to new banking apps and finances um how to stay safe online all sorts of things so we ran that once a week for an hour from facebook and uh like a one hour chat show basically and um yeah it was a great success we've had more than 300,000 views on facebook and uh you know it's all very exciting we absolutely love doing it and we're looking to to do season two at the moment and so we put Mm. that forward for um 
the Beamer Diversity Award and we won. So, mm. uh, yeah, I spent a lot of last night kind of like dancing around very happy. <laughs> I was going to say, lots of people and celebrating. <laughs> how gratifying was that then to, to win that award for that particular program? Oh, amazing. Amazing. Because we, you know, we really, really enjoyed putting it together. It was very stressful to do something, um, you know, like to do a show basically once a week when we've got loads of other stuff going on as well. Mm. Um, so it was very much kind of like, all hands on deck you know like uh, last minute trying to get everything ready <laughs> to um go live with the show and in fact on the first program um just everything that could go wrong did go wrong so i think we were 20 minutes late for the first pro like to go live <laughs> facebook live on the first program and um you know practically I, I think i said just before it actually did go live i think i'm going to have a heart attack because <laughs> it was so stressful <laughs> i was sitting there like oh my god all these things have gone wrong will we actually be able to do it but you know it was a success in the end maybe the stress helped and and like everyone worked the tech moms team worked together so well you know facebook were great that it, it just uh yeah it was amazing we really enjoyed it and you know mums that came on the show and also interact with it interacted with us on facebook you know mm. we obviously made a difference to to quite a few people's lives from doing that and uh yeah so to kind of get the recognition is really nice from from an organization like beamer and um yeah i mean it's just great i'm still sort of like you know floating on a cloud today after oh, after that last night it was amazing glad to hear it now just tell me a bit about that why is it so important to you you know this whole idea of i mean particularly with mums but women more in generally isn't it about getting yeah. women more involved in technology and and more, uh, you know, giving them more opportunities within the, the within the industry. Why is that so important to you? Well, I think there's various reasons, really. I mean, I, I come from, um, I guess, a background of disadvantage, and you know, like when I was um, 25, I was I ended up a sort of single parent living in a refuge, bringing my three kids up, uh, my three small kids up on my own, and then sort of moving out to a council flat in Brixton and and trying to create a life for them, you know, which was the life that I wanted. And so once I got the kids sorted into school and playgroup, I thought, well, what am I going to do? And, you know, I'd left school with five O-levels. Um, so, you know, I didn't have amazing qualifications. So I couldn't just go out and get a job where I'd earn enough money even to pay for childcare. So I realised that I couldn't actually go out to work. Um, so I thought, well, why don't I try going back into education? So this was like 10 years after I'd left school. Mm. So I went along to the local college. I'd always loved maths at school. So I just thought, well, I'll try and do a maths course, see if I can do that and then get into uni. And, and basically that's what I did. I guess I did a um, a maths course in the evenings for a year, which gave me the equivalent of two A-levels, and then went to South Bank Uni, did a degree in computing, um, then stayed on, did a PhD in software engineering and became an academic uh, during that time. So, and like, you know, that's just utterly changed my family's lives really you know in terms of we went from living in poverty to having enough money um you know from being a family where i kind of you know felt we were struggling quite a lot of the time on low income to one where you know we could go on holiday and stuff mm. like that and eat food that we wanted rather than trying to work out which was you know the sort of most nutritious very cheap meal um, all the time, you know, it kind of like grinds you down a bit when you have to think about that all the time. Mm. Um, you know, can I afford to buy this bit of meat or something? Um, so, you know, it just has completely changed our lives, me going back into education and, you know, and I particularly love technology. So I kind of see what that's done for me and mm. also my understanding of 
of the world of technology and what's happening. So, you know, that helps me to understand what's happening in the world in general, I think. Mm. Um, and it's also changed my kids' lives. So, you know, they, they're all also those, I've got four kids now and three grandchildren. Mm -hmm. um, but so my um, three older kids are now in their 30s. And, uh, you know, I mean, they've got great successful lives now. They're with, um, you know, they've got great husbands uh, and wives and, you know, they're all doing well, well, and they're very sort of like, just like stable, happy, successful people. Mm. And, um, you know, I, f I feel like no, looking back now, you know, it's like when you do these things, you don't really know at the time what the effect exactly is going to be. I feel like I was just kind of like hoping that I was doing the right thing and just kind of following my instinct, I suppose. Mm. Um, but I can just see how the fact that I went back into education, you know, then was bringing in more money and, you know, becoming educated myself, it, it just dramatically has changed all of our lives. And then, of course, now that I'm a grandmother, well, that's going to affect my grandchildren's lives as well, you know, and it kind of like the ripple effect go will go down the generations. Mm. And um, at the same time, you know, so like other people on the council estate in Brixton where we were, who, you know, were great people, have really not necessarily had, you know, a great time at all. And so I know some families where some kids have ended up on crack and, you know, they're just some very difficult um, situations for people through not, you know, half, it's not really through any fault of their own. I just think lots of people are just stuck mm. in circumstances and they can't get themselves out of it. So I really see that me going back into education, particularly studying technology, has just kind of taken us on a pathway out of that. Um, and it just, just made a massive difference to my life. So I guess a few years ago, I was trying to work out, well, you know, what kind of what is my, I suppose my legacy or, you know, what are the things I really want to do with my life? And, mm. and one of them was to try and get everyone really to understand the positive, like the benefits of technology. I think in the media quite a lot of the time, stuff about technology is negative, you know, like robots taking our jobs and mm. all that sort of thing. So, of course, some of that is going to happen. But at the same time, what about the amazing amount of jobs that are going to be created because of technology? Like, you know, that's I guess that's not such a good story. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there are ridiculous amounts of opportunities for people that even just understand the basics mm. uh, of tech these days. And that's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I thought I want to try and do something to help people understand the way that technology can benefit them in a positive way. And, you know, like not to be so scared of it. I think a lot of people are scared because they didn't learn it at school. And, you know, then there's negative stuff in the media. And, you know, you always hear about... I don't know, you know, like kids that are having, you know, issues with social media and stuff like that. But the way I see it, the more we understand that, the more we can stop it from happening. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about how do I help everyone to kind of realise all of that? And to, so to start with, I actually started running workshops with seven-year-old kids because I wanted to kind of trial some tech, I guess, teaching workshop kind of stuff with seven-year-olds because I thought if seven-year-olds can do this stuff then I can definitely teach it to adults uh, as well and no one can say it's too hard or anything because mm. you know seven I've done it with seven-year-olds and they've understood it so I run workshops with seven-year-old kids that went really really well and um, we got the parents in at the end of the day and then asked the parents 
to have a go at what the kids have been doing in uh, the classroom. And I just noticed that in general, so not everybody, but in general, when we said that, the dads would just kind of like step in and go, oh, okay, what is it we're going to do? And the mums would just be a bit more like, oh, no, 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 it's okay. No, I want, I want my kids to do it, but I, you know, I'm fine. I don't, I don't want to do that. And that just kind of started a seed of, of uh, I guess, a seed of thought in my brain. Oh, mums, you know, like maybe... Mm. Maybe I start thinking about doing something specifically with mums. And that's kind of how Tech Mums was born, really. And then from there, um, I saw some research which showed that the main positively, positive influencing factors on kids doing well in literacy and numeracy at age 11, the two main factors were their mum's education and their home environment. Mm. Um, so of course in a traditional family setting that you know like that makes sense right if the mum's mainly the person at home it's the mum's attitudes which the kids pick up you know that Mm. that completely makes sense so I thought so if if I can teach mum's tech skills I can like improve mum's confidence around technology show you know give mum's um more knowledge which will maybe help them to get a job get a better job understand what's going on in the world um a bit better and uh also we will be creating a better environment for the kids so the kids are more likely to be positive about technology stuff that they're doing at school Mm. um and the thing is we you know we need it's a ridiculous skill shortage in technology you know like cyber security big data just massive areas where we just need thousands of people to work in and you know, if if we're not going to be positive about technology, not getting people excited about technology, no one's filling those jobs. You know, I mean, mm. it's it's just not going to work. So, um, yeah. So then, uh, what I did was I I decided to put together a program and call it Tech Mums, which was just like for me some of the basic things which I think are fun, which are related to technology which would would help mums to get like I think like a sort of rounded understanding of various things in tech and build their confidence with tech at the same time. So what are some of the things that you work with them on? Yeah so the original program that I put together was two hours a week for five weeks and the first module was on like um, stuff like what's hardware, what's software, what's the cloud Mm. Um, but also like basic office I guess admin skills, so stuff like email, documents, spreadsheets, um, and all that kind of stuff. Then the next week we do app design. So app design is the second week, like an app design workshop, get the mums designing their own apps. Then web design, social media, staying safe online, and then coding in Python is the last uh, class. And it's quite funny. So I'm trying to build up the mum's confidence as we're going through the classes. And, you know, you get to the coding class in the last week. And, you know, even though mums have done web design, so they've done a little bit of HTML and stuff, they still like the coding class. A lot of the mums are like, oh, I'm going to be no good at this. You know, I'm a bit scared. Um, but, you know, like usually after half an hour, an hour, it's tea break time mums don't want to take a tea break because they're enjoying coding so much so you know and I think it to me coding it kind of reminds me of the stuff that I loved when I was about 10 10 or 11 Mm. sort of like that almost like problem solving kind of um mindset I guess and uh you know I think we've all still got a bit of the kind of kid inside us and um I think once you get going with a bit of confidence if it's taught the right way then Mm. everyone can enjoy you know, basic coding because Mm. it's fun. So, um, yeah, I put that program together. We started running it in Tower Hamlets either five or six years ago. Um, And to immediate 
great success, really. We had um, one of our mums, Amina, who I was chatting to yesterday, actually, she um, she came to our focus group before we ran the programme. And, uh, you know, I was asking everyone why they were there. And she w- she said that she's scared of the keyboard. Mm. Um, she said, I know what all these letter keys, but I don't know what are all those other keys. I don't mm. know what they are. And I'm scared if I touch one, something terrible is going to happen. <laughs> and I just thought, well, yeah, no one ever tells you that, do no. they? They don't, you know, they don't tell you. So um, I found that interesting. So then we did the first week, which was like the office admin stuff. And then the second week we're doing app design and I was walking around the classroom Went over to Amina and the group she was in started chatting. I said, you know, so how are you finding tech mums? And uh, Amina said, oh, tech mums has changed my life. So I said, well, that's amazing. But how can that have happened so quickly? Because I was hoping someone might say that by the end of the course, but mm. not after just two or <laughs> two, three hours. Um, so Amina said that she runs a school uniform shop in Watney Market in the East End. And um, for her to get her samples over to customers, she was packaging them up, I think, and her son was taking them over to the customer site. But she said, but um, but last week you taught us how to add attachments to emails. And I realized that I can take photos of the garments and email them across to the customers. Hmm. So that is going to revolutionize my business. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I, it just never occurred to me. Yeah that anyone would not know about adding attachments to emails. But why would, you know, why would everyone know that? They just wouldn't, right? So yeah. it just really opened my eyes to how even really, really small things like that can make a massive difference. And so when I chatted to Amina last summer, I went into the shop and she said she had 10 times the amount of customers uh, that she had from when she did the program five years ago. And now she's not scared of technology. So mm. if she wants to do something, she doesn't know how to do it, she'll Google it and find out and, you know, kind of like go for it rather than being scared of it and thinking she can't do it. Mm. And uh, when I chatted to her yesterday, she said that um, she's probably going to have to take on another person because her business ex- is expanding so much she needs to employ someone because she can't do all the work that she's getting. Mm. So, you know, that's just one small example of one person that, that the course has helped. But we've had lots of kind of different, uh examples over the years and at the moment we're we're just putting together the 10-week version so two hours a week for 10 weeks um of our program because one of the main things that mum said when they finished the program was that they didn't want it to finish <laughs> so it's <laughs> that's okay, a good so sign we made it a bit longer yeah yeah we've made it longer <laughs> and put some more stuff in um about mm. you know how to get a job how to set up a business all that sort of thing as well so um yeah, so it's kind of exciting times for us at the moment. Great. Well, congratulations on you know that impact that you're having and on the award. Um, and just, Thank you. Just thinking back then to when you were 25, as you mentioned, yeah. you, you were um, a single mum then, weren't you? You were in a women's refuge. Yeah. And yeah. you made that decision at that point um, to study technology. So yeah. why? I mean, you mentioned a bit there that you enjoyed maths at school, you enjoyed problem yeah. solving at school, but what was it yeah. that really drew you to to think, okay, right, this is what I need to do. I need to get studying technology right now. Um, well, I, think, I guess it started with the math because I felt most comfortable with that out of all the school subjects. Um, so I guess it was then doing the maths course. And, and in fact, there was um, programming was part of that towards the end. Mm. Um, but I, kind of, I, I thought then, which I still think now, that kind of technology is the future. I knew then that it was going to become more and more pervasive in everything that we do. You know, I didn't exactly know how, but it mm. seemed very clear to me that it was just going to be an, an ever-expanding area. Mm. And so getting a degree in that area, to me, was probably 
A, really interesting, and B, also I'd probably have a job, you know, for life, basically, <laughs> in, in one way or another. And, you know, I was thinking hard about supporting my kids. So, mm. you know, actually earning a good income was, was kind of high up on my priority list as well. You mentioned you left school at 16. So were you yeah. were you encouraged at school? With, you know, you obviously had an interest in maths, but was that encouraged or was it was it not really? Um. Well, I suppose my um, I sort of come from an average family, but my mum died when I was twelve, and mm. then my dad remarried possibly too quickly, and so I kind of went from from being you know like an average, averagely happy person bobbing mm. along to a very unhappy, possibly depressed person, mm. um, living in the sort of new marriage environment, which basically was a bit dysfunctional. So, you know, I wasn't happy at home and, yeah, I started not doing very well at school. I was okay, but I was just kind of like scraping through stuff, really. Um, and too depressed, really, to enjoy anything much, to be honest. Mm. Um, and so I, um, as soon as I was 16, I left home. So I moved in with my uh, friend Kate's family, uh, who lived around the corner from where we lived. We were both waitresses in the cafe down the road. And um, she said her mum took in lodgers. So I went round to have a chat with her mum and uh, she agreed that I could move in. So that was great. Mm. Um, managed to to leave home. And so then I had to pay rent because Kate's family weren't rich. So I um, worked, I think, one full day at the weekend in the cafe and three evenings a week. Um, but also I um, I'd passed 11 plus. I went to grammar school, which was 25 miles away. Mm. So, you know, I had to get up quite early in the morning, go to school, come back, go straight to work three evenings a week and um, work in the evening in the cafe, then come back home. And then part of the deal with me paying a very low rent was that um, I did all the washing up because before before the days of when everyone had a dishwasher. Um, so I had to do all the washing up for about 10 or 12 people when I got home, which is probably about 11 o'clock at night. Um, and then, you know, and then once I'd done that, it was time to do my homework. But of course, I was too tired. So, you know, I just got behind with everything. I started falling asleep at school in the sixth form common room. And after about a term and a half, I just thought I'm, I'm not going to get I'd started A-levels. I'm not going to get any A-levels, am I? You know, I just kind of came to this realisation that um, it wasn't working. So I thought, well, I might as well go out, try and get a job now and then see if I can go back to school later on and get some qualifications. Mm. What well, I guess in the end is is what I did. Okay, so you did start um, your A-levels, but you decided it was just yeah. too much at that point. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't have passed, mm. you know, like the, um, the exams, I wouldn't have passed it. So, yeah. Just because life was too sort of chaotic at that time you mean or too you were yeah, too well, busy yeah I mean the thing is I was very happy then so like I left home I was ridiculously happy I can mm. remember um saying I felt like I was on a permanent holiday that's how it felt because I was just so happy after leaving home mm. um you know going from kind of having beans on toast every single weekday for five years <laughs> for dinner uh to lovely home cooked food that's just one example of how much better it was not not being bullies you know not mm. none of these sort of emotional don't know what you call it cruelty stuff mm. that was going on at home and a bit of physical cruelty it just yeah it wasn't a great environment so um yeah I was just really really happy but I had so much that I had to kind of do in my life that I I just uh I just knew that I wasn't going to pass my exams I was mm. just too tired to do all my school work really and work part-time and go to school so far away it just uh yeah it wasn't working out and was this this was in Fareham near Portsmouth is that right that's where is that where you no 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 Fareham is where I was born but we lived ah. in Hampshire till I was six then we I moved see. to Hertfordshire then we moved to Essex so it's actually in um, Burnham on Crouch in Essex right okay 
Okay. And so what you then thought, okay, right, I'm not going to do these A-levels. I need to go and work. So what did you end up yeah. doing then? Um, I got a job with the local council, so Essex County Council in Chelmsford, working in the education department as a clerical assistant. And, yeah, I didn't really like it very much. So I'd kind of gone from trying to do A-levels, which were quite hard, to then having a job where, which was basically filing, so putting things in alphabetical order. And, and I used to um, joke that um, I could have done that job before I went to school because I could read and knew my alphabet when I was four. Mm. So why did I bother going to school for 11 years to mm. do a job that I could have done when I was four? So, um, yeah, it just, you know, it wasn't intellectually stimulating, I suppose. Mm. And so I did it for a few months, but then I was just like, I just can't do this forever, you know. Um, so I, um, I actually went over the road to the career centre and mm. did – uh, like a uh, answered a questionnaire thing, and and they said, oh, you've got these options, blah blah blah, or you could um, sign up to do to community service volunteers, uh, which were based in um, Pentonville Road in London. So I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I'll go and volunteer and like see see what happens. Mm. So I went along for an interview, and they accepted me and placed me in High Street Kensington at um kensington barracks it was then it's been knocked down now but it was an old army barracks where um there were 200 refugees from vietnam uh living and they wanted someone to run the creche for the younger kids while mm. the parents went to english lessons so hmm. basically moved moved to high street ken which was quite different to the world yeah. of Essex. <laughs> and um yeah so i just loved it i mean I, I kind of wanted to move to london anyway so it, it worked out really well and uh yeah i just found it so exciting um yeah after living somewhere that's you know reasonably remote to be right basically almost in the middle of london with so much you know mm. something going on all the time um and uh yeah i enjoyed working with the kids as well i started learning vietnamese a bit and uh really enjoyed it i had a great time there that must have been yeah quite a change of pace from where you were before to, to yeah doing, to doing uh, yeah that. almost opposite yeah <laughs> opposite pace yeah yeah and so how long did you did you stay doing that well, so that, that place actually shut down four months after I went there. So it's funny because like, thinking back, it seems like a really important time in my life, which was quite long, but actually it was only four months. Mm. Um, that place shut down. But then um, with one of the other volunteers working there, Jane, we both got jobs doing similar kind of thing, uh, but in Hampshire. So she was in Portsmouth and I was in Gosport then. Mm. Um, so again, working with uh, refugees from, with, from Vietnam. So I did that for a year in total. Hmm. Then decided that I needed a career, so I didn't quite know what to do. So I, both my parents are nurses, and there's a lot of nursing in my family. So I applied to be um, to train as a nurse at UCH in London. Also, hmm. I wanted to come back to London because having lived in London for four months, I was desperate to come back as hmm. well. Um, yeah, so then I started training as a nurse. Um, didn't really like it like, right from the beginning, really, but I stuck it out for a year, thinking hopefully it will um various reasons i suppose i was really really painfully shy then mm. so i i hated talking to people i didn't know i just never knew what to say to them and if you're a nurse you're having to go to people you don't know several times a day every day start conversations with them so that i found just ridiculously difficult because i never knew what to say to people mm. and you know i kind of i don't know why but i thought there would be more sort of medical stuff that mm. I was doing, whereas it seemed to mainly be washing people and chatting to people. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, as a very shy 18-year-old girl, I was 
not that comfortable with washing like blokes <laughs> in the bath. You know, I mean, it just like it was just, you know, like probably now I'd be quite up for <laughs> washing, washing some um, some old blokes, uh, being an old woman myself now. But um, at the time, I was just horrified, really. You know, but right. I just had to get on and do it. But internally, I was just horrified by the whole thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, and occasionally also like, so this is in the 1980, it was also kind of like you would always be getting groped by some bloke, one of the mm. patients somewhere usually. Um, which, you know, thank goodness, times have changed, hopefully, yeah. a bit now that that's not so prevalent. But that was just kind of taken as that's going to happen. Mm. And you just have to tell them off, basically. And it just like, again, I was very shy. And it just like, I was very traumatized by all of it, really, to be mm. honest. Well, you mentioned the shyness there. I mean, clearly, you, you know, you do a lot of public speaking now. So yeah. many people wouldn't describe you that way. So why? No. I mean, clearly being younger is, you, you know, shyness is a part of being younger. But why were you, do yeah. you think, so shy at that age? I think I was naturally shy and I think particularly maybe growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, I can remember my, at least my dad anyway, saying don't speak until you're spoken to mm. kind of thing. And, you know, I don't think that was particularly my family. I think that's just how it was then, particularly mm. with girls. And um, so, you know, even if I hadn't been shy, I, you know, I wouldn't have been able to go around expressing my opinion about stuff anyway, really at home anyway. So I think that kind of compounded it. And mm. then, I think at various points I've kind of thought to myself, if I want to be happy and have the sort of life that I really want to lead, I've got to change the way that I feel and change my behaviour, I suppose, so mm. that I can just be a happier person. Because it's 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 not easy being shy. You know, mm. it's like you're basically, if there are people around, you're always stressed, like always. Yeah. You can't relax. Um and you're sort of like hypersensitive. That's how I felt I was, I suppose. And so I just kind of decided I was going to change myself, I think, really. And you know, I'm so glad that I did, really, because, you know, it's so much easier <laughs> not, not being so shy and just being able to say what you think yeah. and just talk to people. Tell us a bit about the, the history of what, what happened there. Sure. Yeah, well, so actually that kind of came out of BCS Women. So I set up in 98 and then... In 2003, I got invited up to Bletchley Park for the first time for a, a British Computer Society meeting. And so I went along to the meeting. And at, at that time, all I really knew about Bletchley Park was that the code breakers were there. And for some reason, I had this kind of image in my head of like 50 old blokes wearing tweed jackets, mm. smoking pipes and, <laughs> and doing the Times crosswords and a bit of code breaking on the side. So I don't know where that image came from, but that's that's definitely kind of what I thought happened there and you know the kind of people that work there so that's what I thought on the way there anyway so I went to the meeting which was like an all-day meeting and at the end I went for a walk around the site and it's like a 26 acre site so it's pretty large and um, bumped into these guys sort of uh, rebuilding Turing's bomb machine which I had no, no clue what that was at all so they told me all about that and so that's the if you've seen the imitation game that's mm. the um the big machine in the imitation game yeah um uh, yeah, it's called Christopher in the film, but it, it was actually called The Bomb Machine, Bomb with an E on the end. Are you a fan of that and, film, um, by the way? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, briefly, why, why yes and no? Um, because it's amazing. Having campaigned for three years to save Bletchley Park, been involved for such a long time, to have a feature film that's gone round the world and every country I go to, if I talk about Bletchley Park people know about it from the imitation game so mm. it just massively raised awareness around the world which is just mm. incredible that's like 
a dream of mine for that to happen. Yeah. So I love it from that point of view. And also it's a good film if you watch it. It's a good <laughs> film. Yeah. But I hate it because a lot of it's not true. <laughs> Which bits? So, well, like Turing didn't build the bomb machine. Right. <laughs> he he came up with, um, you know, using other people's uh, work along with his own. He came up with the sort of theoretical model for the bomb machine. But it was a guy called Doc Keen and his team who actually built it, who right. worked out how to build the machine from Turing's, uh, Turing and Welshman's theoretical model. So, you know, that whole thing of him building it, blah, 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 and his boss, like, coming in and have a go, having a go at him, well, that just, that just didn't happen. Mm. And, you know, that's kind of one of the main parts of the film. <laughs> you know, and also his boss was running Bletchley Park. Obviously, he wasn't running in and, like, shouting at Turing and stuff all the time because it just didn't work like that. Right. Um, and it's unfortunate that they've, they've used the actual names of the people involved, as in Turing's boss, the guy that was running um, Bletchley Park, so, of course, after the film, when this guy um, is portrayed as kind of like a baddie, really, mm. um, you know, so so people think that's what it was really like. But it yeah. wasn't at all. You know, like this guy was running Bletchley Park doing amazing stuff. Um, and he's now seen by everyone that's seen The Imitation Game as a bad person, where, in fact, he wasn't at all. <laughs> so in true Hollywood so, style, they took a bit too much oh, yeah. artistic yeah, license. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, and at the time, I just thought, wasn't Hitler enough of a baddie for that film? Did you <laughs> yeah. have to have, you know, one of the good guys being bad as well? I just thought, <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Um, yeah, so, so I went up to Bletchley Park, didn't know much about it, started chatting to these guys, and, um, uh, you know, they're telling me all about Turing's bomb, and uh, then they said, oh, so why are you here? So I said, oh, I'm here representing this group of uh, women in computing. And they said, oh, did you know that more than half the people that worked were women? So I was like, mm. no, I had no clue about that, and said, you know, I thought it was 50-year-old blokes, basically. Um, how many people worked here? And he said more than 10,000. Mm. So I was just completely blown away. I mean, I just had no idea about that. I had no idea because it was almost 8,000 women, I think, worked there. Mm. And I went away thinking, well, I've got to do something to raise the profile of these women and find out their stories because I could find nothing online about them at all mm. at that time. So, yeah, that was 2003. So I started to, like going around asking for funding really from various sources because I thought, why don't we create um, interviews some women, kind of do an oral history project to capture the memories of the women that worked at Bletchley Park because mm. um, of course also you know they weren't getting any younger and um, <laughs> I thought you know it kind of, it's kind of time critical to yes. interview them get their stories so that they're not lost forever and it took me a few years actually to to get the funding but I eventually did and I think 2007 and um, so uh, we ran the project recorded the women and then the project launched in uh i think june 2008 and um so at the launch um i gave my talk about why i thought it was important and then um the director of bletchley park at the time gave a talk and he said basically that he's really worried that bletchley park might have to close and if it closes it on it you know we just wouldn't be able to open it again mm. they didn't have enough funding their main funding source was people visiting and the visitor numbers um, weren't doing so great. And also there was a lot of talk in the uh, media at the time about a swine flu epidemic. Mm. He said he was really worried if there was a swine flu epidemic, the visitor numbers would drop, their income would drop, and they'd have to close and they'd never open again. Mm. So I listened to that thinking, oh, no, I didn't know, any, you know about any of that. That's terrible. And then a couple of months after that, I went up to Bletchley Park again 
Uh, and this time did a, a full tour with one of the veterans. So someone that actually worked there telling us about stuff that he did and um, kind of like, you know, just got a better overview of all the really important contributions made by the work done there during World War II. And I had this moment where I was standing looking at Hut 6, which at that time was looked like it was falling down and had like a blue tarpaulin over the end. Mm. And um, this guy was telling us that the work that was done there was said to have shortened the war by uh, two years. And at that time, uh, 11 million people a year were dying. So potentially the work done to save 22 million lives. And I just thought, and this place might close? That's terrible, and I can't, I can't let that happen. Yeah. So that time I went away, and so by then, kind of like going back to my career, I was um, I did a PhD. In the middle of my PhD, I applied for a full-time lectureship, so I got that, so I became a lecturer. And then any time I could apply for a promotion, I did, so I got promoted a few times. And so by then, in um, 2008, I was head of a computer science department at the University of Westminster, mm. And that meant that I was on an email list of heads and professors of computing across the UK. So I emailed the list that night with a photo of the hut with the blue tarpaulin, kind of told the story. Mm. And someone had set up a petition on the number 10 website saying we've got to save Bletchley Park. So I pointed everyone at that and uh, sent the email around with a photo, a link to the petition, and then checked the petition a few hours later and saw that all these like really famous professors of computer science from Oxford, Cambridge, and around the country hmm. were all signing this petition. I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, it's not just me. You know, all of these people, people that wrote the textbooks that I studied as a student, hmm. they all think the same way. So it kind of really gave me the confidence that my whole kind of community um were on board with you know we've got to to help save bletchley park mm. and um i chatted to um a friend john at work who was also a big fan of bletchley park and um said okay what else can we do look everyone's signing the petition and he was like why don't we write a letter to the times so i was like yeah that's a great idea so john drafted a letter I sent it around to all the heads and professors and 97 of them signed it within a few days. I'm going to send that into the Times. And then I just thought, I'm going to contact as many journalists as I can, which I think was about four because I didn't <laughs> know any, um, and uh, see if anyone's interested in the story. And luckily, one of them was Rory Keflin-Jones. And he mm. basically phoned me up 20 minutes after I sent the email mm. uh, to have a chat about, um, about the story. And... Uh, there's a longer story, which is in my book, about what actually happens. But in a nutshell, a couple of weeks later, he interviewed me at Bletchley Park saying I was ashamed to be British mm. and uh, why don't why don't we look after our heritage and, you know, the stuff about... A good, a good media soundbite you pulled out there. Yeah, the yeah, amazing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Always helps with know, the media coverage. Natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, and that was on the Today programme as well in the morning mm. and... Uh, got lots of lots of interest from all over the place um but then lots of interest but like nothing changed in Bletchley Park situation mm. it was just lots of interest but but nothing really happening um and so after that I was just like okay well what am I going to do next you know I'm now an academic computer scientist I don't really know about PR marketing mm. I don't know any of that stuff really <laughs> so I didn't quite know what to do and then later on that year so towards the end of 2008 I started using Twitter mm. and quite quickly realized oh my goodness this is a tool I can use to reach people mm. in so many different ways because just by typing Bletchley Park into the search box in Twitter I could find everyone in the world to, who was talking about Bletchley Park and of course there were some people that were interested so mm. 
you know, there's instead of trying to persuade people that I didn't sort of have any connection with how worthwhile Bletchley Park was, well, I could find all of these people that are already talking about it, so already interested, mm. and start chatting to them about it. And so basically over, when well, the campaign was three years in the end, but over that three years, I did loads of different things. Um, but to start with, it was kind of just finding that community of people um, on Twitter, of finding people that would reach out to their communities and so, you know, there were people that were really great at social media where I was a complete novice in those days. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from them and they helped out a lot in reaching a wider audience. Mm. We set up going up to interview people. So once a year at Bletchley Park in September, so they just had it as the Enigma reunion weekend. So mm. loads of veterans go every year. So we went up for a few years, interviewed veterans on video, audio, all different uh, types of social media and, you know, like kind of mm. promoted the veterans and their stories and also recorded them for posterity. Um, I managed to get Stephen Fry involved quite early on by, mm. I saw him, <laughs> he tweeted uh, a selfie of himself and some friends stuck in a lift in centre point um, <laughs> saying that um, they'd, I don't know, like rung the phone number on the wall and pressed the, the alarm button, but no one had come to get them. So they thought they'd tweet a selfie or something like that. Yeah. And I just saw that picture and I just thought, Stephen Fry, he must be interested in Bletchley Park. He yeah. must. Yeah. So luckily he was following me <laughs> on Twitter, which meant that I could send him direct messages, private messages on Twitter. So yeah. One uh, well that night after a couple of bottles of beer, so a bit of Dutch courage maybe. I just thought, okay, I'm just I'm just gonna I'm gonna message him and hope for the best. Uh, so I sent him several direct messages saying, please get involved. You know, it'll make a massive difference if you um, get involved with the campaign. And then the next morning he tweeted a link to my blog. So I set up a blog to kind of um, just show kind of what we were doing with the campaign and raise mm. awareness. And at that time, I was getting about 50 hits a day, which I thought was great. Yeah. But uh, one one tweet from Stephen Fry, and I got 8,000 that day. Wow. So that was a real lesson for me in finding people who care about, you know, what you're doing, and then they can reach out to, to mm. their mm. Um, group of uh, contacts or connections or whatever and how that can make a massive difference really quickly. And so that day I was the most retweeted person on Twitter in the world. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been quite weird. So, yeah, no, absolutely, because my Twitter just went mental, just mm. completely and utterly mental that whole day. It was just crazy, yeah. really crazy, but in a good way, obviously. So when you think about these things now, you know, you know, getting <clears throat> Stephen Fry involved in a campaign, a successful campaign to say Bletchley Park, all the work that you do in terms of public speaking, you know, your, yeah. your position in the, the sort of tech world, and you think back to your sort of 15, 14, 15 year old self, yeah. How, how what do you when you think back to that time now? How do you feel about? Or how do you think your fourteen or fifteen year old self would feel looking if they were able if she was able to look ahead to now? Yeah, um, I think shocked, <laughs> <laughs> shocked, shocked that I managed to do what I've done. I think really because it's quite hard from that sort of position to mm. imagine anything like the sort of life that I've had. Really, um, so I've been very pleasantly shocked and surprised. I think, but. Um, yeah, I think like shocked and amazed really in, in a good way. And I, you know, I'm just kind of delighted really, you know, I mean, of course there's been ups and downs all the mm. way along the way, but I'm delighted with my life now. I mean, I just enjoy it so much. Mm. Just, I've just got so many great things happening. I've got loads of great people, loads of great friends. I love my work. You know, I can go out and 
I can see that I'm helping people change their own lives in a positive way mm. several times a week you know, or more. You know, I just I just love everything that I do. And I guess what I've worked kind of over 30 years or whatever it is now to actually be in this position. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've kind of like gradually just been moving things a bit one way, a bit the other, done this, done that, mm. to kind of get myself, I guess, in the position that I'm in now. So mm. I'm just... I'm just delighted. And then, you know, then at home as well, you know, I've got a lovely husband now yeah. who's really, really supportive. So, you know, like we're really happy. My kids are, three kids have grown up. I've got a daughter who's 14 now. I've got three grandchildren. It's like it's all, it's all worked out. I was going to so mention, it's, yeah. It's just wonderful. You mentioned yeah. you are a grandmother now. Congratulations. Yeah. And so Thank you. just thinking about, you know, young people and technology, I mean, what do yeah. you have any... I mean, what are your sort of aspirations for them, I guess? But also, what are your fears in terms of technology? Because there is a lot of, you know, there is there are obviously huge benefits of technology, but there are negative sides too, aren't there? Are there? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, I think like anything, right, there's a positive and negative side to everything. We've just got to accept that. Mm. Um, but I, what I think is the more that we know and understand technology, the more that we can make it a positive thing and the more we'll understand what the negative things might be and what to do about them. Whereas if we're just like, oh, technology's bad and keep away from it, well, mm. then someone else is going to do it and they might be the person that's going to do negative stuff with it. Mm. So I feel like, you know, we really all need to educate ourselves about what's going on and as much as possible and I guess you know that's partly what I'm trying to do with all of the things that I'm doing mm. is just to encourage people to to not be scared of it to just you know just find out more and kind of work out for yourself maybe particular areas that you might be interested but just kind of get some basic knowledge so that you can understand what people are talking about different conversations so that you can be um you know kind of like up up to speed with particular you know like so now everyone's talking about ai you know so mm. just find out what that actually means so that when people are having conversations you you just know what that is and then you know when you can see things that are happening you can have an opinion on it and mm. kind of like understand because you know technology is is affecting so much that's happening across the world now and that's just that's going to happen more and more and more mm. and so if we kind of bury our heads in the sand and think technology's bad okay I just don't want to know about it mm. actually we're really going to miss out as individuals and you know as a country as well mm. I'd like to finish the interview by asking you three questions that ask everybody uh, but before okay. I, before i ask you those yeah. ones i wanted to ask yeah. you something um now anyone who's seen your picture will know you have a very striking hairstyle which is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> short uh, bright pink hair which you've had for quite a while i think haven't you about uh, 10 years now yeah, yeah so is there a story behind why you decided to adopt that hairstyle because it is as i say it's a very <laughs> it's a very noticeable hairstyle isn't it and yeah. we talked a bit yeah, about well, my husband loves it because he can always spot me in a crowd yeah, i bet he can yeah <laughs> we talked a bit about your shyness now that's not the haircut of a shy person is it so just that's very true is, no. is there a story behind that the haircut well kind of well so before this style or color i had it um white as in like bleached mm. until it was white and and a pretty similar style so i had that for quite a long time beforehand <laughs> so and i have dyed my hair since i was 16 different colors but mainly kind of like 
you know, like using henna when I was 16. I think I dyed it black in my 20s. Mm. Um, and so, so I've had various different um, colours. And, yeah, so I, had, I was bleaching it white when I was found out I was pregnant with my uh, youngest daughter. And my hairdresser said, OK, you're pregnant, you can't bleach your hair anymore. And I was like, what? <laughs> I can't bleach my hair. Oh, my God. <laughs> what am I going to do? Uh, so I started, I must have put henna and stuff on it again and gone back to red, I think. But like you're sort of more of a muted red. And um, then uh, I think after she was born, uh, I just kind of was liking the red. Didn't really want to go back to bleach my hair because actually it hurt. You know, mm. really. <laughs> when you've got bleach on your head for a long time, it starts kind of like fizzing away and it feels like oh. it's attacking your skin. <laughs> so it's not actually fun. I once nearly fainted from having the bleach on my head uh, for oh. too long in the hairdressers. Oh, no. So, yeah, it's not a fun thing. <laughs> um, and then... I got a new hairdresser and um, she's she's amazing, Jess. She's an artist as well. She's an incredible woman and, and my hairdresser mm. and now a good friend. And um, so, you know, we were chatting away because we I think we both had some red, some version of red hair um, and uh, sorry, some shade light, some red shade, um, but not a particularly bright one. And then I, I can remember we had a conversation sometime where I was saying, yeah, I just really would like my hair to like stand out more, be a bit brighter. Mm. Do you know of any like brighter reds? Um, because like mm. 10 years ago that actually there, there weren't like lots of really bright colors. And, um, mm. and that was that. And then maybe like six months after that, you know, I went to the hairdresser. She's like, oh, I've got something for you. And I was like, what is it? What is it? And um, she found this really bright red, like, well, as it is now. So I think of it as red, not pink, which is quite funny because okay, right. loads of people think it's pink. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if it's red or if it's pink. But in my <laughs> eyes, it's red. Um, and so she found this amazing, like, really bright red color. She's like, shall we, shall we, shall we, shall we? And I was like, oh, let's do it. So she did it bright red. And I was like, when, you know, like, when I looked in the mirror at the end, I was like, this is me. This is me. It's amazing. You know, I just, I don't know why, because like, it's not a usual thing, right? But when mm. I saw it, I just thought, this is me. Did it's it, very weird. But there you go. You so I kept extra, it like that. Did now, it give yeah. you more confidence, do you think, having that hair? Uh, maybe. Mm. Yeah, maybe. I'm not, I'm not sure. But um, I just love it. Mm. I just love it. And the thing is, for me, because I've had it for such a long time, it obviously looks completely normal because that's yeah. what I see every day when I look <laughs> in the mirror. So it's quite funny. So in London, no one gives you a second glance. But then if you go out to somewhere a bit more remote, yeah. you know, you, you get people staring at me and I'm like, why are this? Oh, it's my hair. You know, like <laughs> I just kind of forget, you know, that it's not a usual yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, well, that's crazy. A, it's, <laughs> that's a good story. <laughs> so three questions to finish with, that, as I say, that I'm asking everyone. So the yeah. first one is, um, do you have like uh, a routine that you follow each day or in terms of work? So, for example, uh, is it it could be a routine that you have in the morning before you go to work or a sort of routine, a, a set of cir circumstances that you have to do before you sit down to do some work or, you know, is it, you know, you could two espressos before lunch or what is it that you do every day that that gets you in the right frame of mind to do to do your work um get up have a shower <laughs> <laughs> uh eat my breakfast have a cup of coffee then i'm ready so, so not, normally normally breakfast is um muesli and a grated apple nice so so yeah, pr a pretty milk obviously yes a, a pretty simple routine then yeah <laughs> all right the second question what when you look back over um, everything, you know, in terms of yeah. personal, uh, professional life, what's the moment that you think that you're sort of most proud of? Um, you know, and this is not about financial gain or about 
anything like that necessarily. But the bit where you think, okay, yeah, I did that. That's my the bit where I feel, feel most proud that I did that. Uh, God, it's quite hard actually. Mm. Um, I think I think I've got to say the 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 Bletchley Park in terms of my my professional life, the mm. Bletchley Park campaign actually working out and Bletchley Park being okay. Mm. Um, and it's funny because when I started the campaign, I thought, oh, six months, everyone will understand, Bletchley Park will be sorted. Uh, and of course, life doesn't work like that. <laughs> um, so by the time I got to three years of campaigning, I thought, this I'm just going to be doing this for the rest of my life. Like, mm. you know, it's just not, it's just going to be basically my hobby for the rest of my life. So then when, um, uh, when the, you know, the director of Bletchley Park said, no, you, you don't need to say that anymore, Sue. Bletchley Park is saved. I was just like, what? Mm. Really? <laughs> I just... I couldn't take it in. It took me some time to actually believe that that was actually true. Um, and, you know, I kind of like, it's not a major part of my life anymore because, you know, my, what I did was to, to run that campaign to make sure that it was okay. But so, you know, like I just see loads of stuff to do with Bletchley Park now and I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> you know, how cool is that? Yeah. So that's professionally. What about personally? Um, I just think... It's not one thing, but just like my kids doing so well, I'm just so utterly proud and delighted, you know, that mm. we came from, you know, so that was like me in my 20s in a refuge for six months. Well, they were like, my sons were the twins. They were one and my daughter was three. So, you know, they, they didn't have the easiest start in life, really. And then we were sort of struggling financially and stuff. Mm. So, you know, they've just all done so well. And I'm just so so proud of them and you know like my little daughter as well now I just uh, I'm just so proud of my kids really hmm. and finally then um this could be you know a book or music or a movie or a tv series that you're watching but what is it that right now you know the la yeah. today or the last week what are you really enjoying you know that's like, uh yeah what, well, what is so it yeah, recently we've been um, looking back at uh, the Ali G show. Oh, yeah. Because it's like, I think it's 20 years ago now, some ridiculous amount of time ago. That's amazing, um, isn't it? And, you know, I loved it then. It was just so fresh and exciting. Mm. And, like, watching it again this week, it still is. It's amazing. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen is an absolute genius. So, yeah, I just, I love the Ali G show. It's just so cool. Have you watched any of his newer series? The um, Yeah. Who is America? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've watched yeah, a few yeah. episodes. So, so, that, so that, yeah, so that's that's good. But I, I still like the Ali G show Ali G. better. It's still all about Ali yeah. G. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Sue. Well, many thanks for talking to me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hi, it's Guy again. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of Creative Forces. I hope you enjoyed it. Just a quick word at the end of this episode, because you now. If you like what you hear with the podcast, you now have the opportunity, if you wish, to help to fund it. Now, at the moment, Creative Forces is, is a fortnightly affair. Uh, but what I'd love to do in the future is to do it more frequently. I'd love to be able to travel and pay for the travel expenses to go and um, meet guests face to face because it just makes for a better interview. I think you really find out more about the person if you're, you're face to face. Um, and so, yeah, looking for funding. It's very much an optional thing. If you like what you hear and you want to help, great. If you don't, don't worry about it at all. Please continue enjoying the podcast. If you do want to find out more, though, we I now have a, a Patreon page for the uh, 
podcast and you can find it at patreon that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash creative forces pod that's patreon.com forward slash creative forces pod if you do decide you're in a position to help fund the podcast there are various rewards on offer uh, including exclusive uh, bonus content which only um, people who help to fund the podcast will get there's also the chance if you go big that we can uh, sit down and have a cup of tea any help you can give would be most welcome but as i say don't worry about it if you can't please help uh, please go on enjoying the podcast uh, liking and subscribing if you can um but yeah thanks for listening see you soon